Today's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Best Fiends. Download the five-star rated puzzle game, Best Fiends, free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Hello everyone. I'm really excited for this week and all the stories that it'll bring. The weather is beginning to cool down and things are getting chillier outside and with the stories. Let's not waste any more time as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. That's the last time I make a 2am burger run. Written by Weird Bryce Guy. I'm currently sitting in my car, parked on the street from a restaurant after having had the most terrifying experience of my life. I'll do my best to describe with as much clarity as possible the absolute freaking nightmare that just transpired inside the burger place. I'm still really shaken up by what happened, so forgive me if I gloss over certain things. My brain is still trying to process the dark unreality of it all. Earlier in the night, I had been sitting at home, hungry and bored, a terrible combination. So I drove to a nearby fast food restaurant for a 2am burger and fries. It wasn't the first time that I had done that, but it might be the last. I went in, placed my order, and stood a few places away from the counter to await my food. A few moments later, I heard a weird whooshing sound, like flags being battered by the wind, and saw a dark shape move with incredible speed outside the front of the restaurant. A few seconds later, the front doors were thrown open, and a thing out of some ultra-cosmic nightmare walked into the restaurant. I say walked, but really, the thing sort of hovered in. There were no feet to be seen. Its body was encased in this shadowy, cloud-like substance or aura, from which blue sparks issued and fizzled at random. Appendages, whether they were arms or legs I cannot say, hung limply from the cloud-enshrouded body, and a lofty, conoid projection, presumably the head, sat atop the cloud form. Eyes, or at least, dark orbs which resembled eyes, were situated all around the cephalic-like projection, and several bulbous purple-skinned nodes served possibly as in human ears, or were the apparatuses of some other less fathomable sense. Obviously, I pulled out my phone, after recovering from the initial shock of the monstrous sight, but when I turned on my camera, all I saw on the screen was darkness. Nothing of the strangeness before me was detected by my phone's camera. And glancing to my left toward the counter, I saw an expression of disappointment on the face of one of the cashiers, also holding her phone, and I knew then that her phone was similarly affected. Apparently heedless of our attempts to capture it on video, the creature approached the counter, but rather than smash it to pieces, or attempt to ensnare the people behind it. The creature stopped a few inches away from the surface and angled that columnial head structure toward the menu board above. 
and a display of breath-stealing grotesqueness. The head remained still, while the ocular orbs situated around it moved. Instead, some orbited the head, others sunk inward or ballooned outward. It was in this manner that the thing scanned the items displayed on the broad menu. The scene was horrific, unwholesome, an exhibition of sight and analysis wholly alien to human behavior. And then out of nowhere, I heard a voice, and I knew at once by its guttural yet machine-like tones that it belonged to the abysmal patron. All right, all right. Place a normal human order. Pay and get out of here. No need to attract any special attention. Just be cool, Blagnarok. You can do this. These words were not spoken by any mouth that I could see. Weren't transmitted audibly. I heard them in my head. As if they had been broadcasted into my skull along with some psychic channel. I saw the restaurant workers flinch. The voice having been transmitted directly to their brains as well. The creature, who had called itself Blagnarok continued its examination of the menu, wholly ignorant to the fact that its thoughts had just been broadcasted to the other occupants of the building. In a voice that was like the full-speed collision of two semi-trucks, including the agonized screams of those trapped in the subsequent highway catastrophe, the creature voiced its order to the cashier, with no obvious organ of speech. Though the clot about its body did shift, as if to allow for the passage of sound waves through it. Yeah, um, can I get a, let's see, um, four, no, no, six of those triple bacon cheeseburgers. And could I have the fries be dipped in cheese? Yeah, just the whole batch dunked in a vat of cheese, if possible. And then I'll have a, let's go with a modest 200 chicken nuggets. And give me about 30 of those little barbecue sauce containers. No, no, wait. I'll have the honey mustard instead. Thank you. And I'm not doing anything tomorrow, so... I guess I'll have 10 of your mini tacos. The chicken ones, please. Yeah, yeah, I think that'll be it. Wait, no, Blagnarok. That wasn't a normal order. Who orders food without a drink? Do you want them to think that you're weird? Do you want them to start suspecting things? Think, Blagnarok, think. Oh, and, uh, a diet cola, please. Good save, Blag, nice. Soon they'll call you Blagnarok, wearer of human skin. Or maybe something even cooler. The cashier's mouth was now agape, as were the mouths of her co-workers. I felt the desperate urge to get them to play along, lest we all suffer some awful fate at the hands of this morphologically unimagined creature. I gestured broadly and openly towards them, concealed from Black's bizarrely oriented sight due to the collective focus of its freely moving eyes upon the little shelves of cookies on the counter. The cashiers, noticing my gestures and understanding their intent, assumed faces and postures of a slightly rigid casualness, with great reluctance. Hmm, do I deserve a cookie? I did soar here from the Garden of Outer Time, 
And I am participating in that community swim-through with that ever-black channel of souls on Tuesday. Nah, nah, not tonight. You stick to your diet, Blog. You can almost fit into your old planet shell. Don't quit now. The eye orbs then focused at once upon the face of the cashier. And I briefly feared she would scream out in terror. But impressively, she kept her cool. Kept her bewilderment and fear in check. That'll be, um... $216.37. The dark nimbus around Blagnarok shifted. The arcs of electricity surging intensely for a moment. And then an object was violently launched from the middle of the mass. It landed wetly atop the counter. And squirmed there for several moments before finally... Fatally assuming a state of morbid immobility. The cashier's eyes went wide, and I watched as one of the other workers collapsed from the sheer frightfulness of the situation. On the counter was a mass of what appeared to be bones, connected by oily and pink tissue. In addition to the bones, there were the corpses of ugly black, alarmingly large critters. What might have been the common insects of some prehistoric age are a hypogeobiome attached to the mass by a brown, mucus-like substance. Blagnarok looked from the cashier to the counter, and then its cloud cloak shifted and surged again. Blag, you idiot. They need human money, the papery stuff. They probably can't make change for a cachet of condemned condensed flash anyway. Sorry, I, uh, was just at the thing, uh, the casino. I forgot to exchange my chips. Naha. <laughs> the mass, the cash, was then reabsorbed back into Black's body by the cloud, which had briefly expanded to envelop half the counter in a mere second. A fat wad of cash was then launched, landing in the oily puddle left by the cash. The cashier took the stained money with a trembling hand, counted out what was owed, and returned the rest to the counter. This was incorporated back into Blagnarok's body in the same aforementioned manner of cloud extension and absorption. She told him, it, that his order would be ready soon, and he politely thanked her. Stunned, Barely holding on to my sanity, I stepped a little further away so as to allow Blagnarok to pass. It hovered by me, and I caught a whiff of the foulest, most putrid scent I had ever smelled. The thing reeked of death, decay, and moldy cheese, emitted a stench so powerfully offensive that I briefly considered forsaking my order and leaving the store. But I was terribly hungry, and I had already paid, so I stayed. Blagorok went to the dining area, examined the area in its monstrous and multi-eyed way, and eventually went on to hover above the seat of a booth in the very back. Once settled, he began to reflect on his day, in his head of course, and I can't bring myself to repeat, even vaguely, the awful atrocities and hyper-violent reveries 
he recalled and reimagined as he waited for his bounty of food. Horrified, repulsed, I sat down at a table, far away from the ruminating horror, to give my trembling knees a break. Perhaps 15 minutes later, a parade of workers exited the kitchen, each bearing a tray loaded with food. They all looked exhausted, their uniforms stained with liquid cheese and sweat. Four passed by my table, but the fist stopped and laid a strand in front of me. I thanked him, and he absentmindedly responded, You're welcome, while fearfully eyeing the creature across the room. The workers deposited their trays on the three tables, which Blagnarok had drawn toward himself, and then laughed unscathed. And they practically fought against each other to get back into the kitchen, where I'm sure they shared a sigh, and maybe even a few tears of immense relief. Just as I was about to bite into my burger, poorly assembled, but that was understandable, I received yet another psychically shared transmission. Wow, look at that guy's tray. Poor dude, must be broke. That's terrible. What is it that humans are always saying? Be charitable and generous. Alright, Black. Now's your chance to prove without a doubt that you're one of them. Give him some of your food. He'll think to himself, Wow, what a kind and completely normal human. Yeah, this'll do it for sure. Instinctively turning around, at the first reference to my presence, I saw one of the overloaded trays lift off from the table and hover in midair for a moment before my brain was blasted with yet another transmission. No, humans can't control things with their minds. They only have the one and they use it to do other things, like sing songs to themselves and reminisce fondly on their most embarrassing moments. No, Blog, give it to him with an arm, like a proper human. The tray wobbled and then fell to the table, and a black, shadow-fringe tentacle emerged from the cloud cloak. The handless appendage flailed around for a moment before steadying itself, and then it seized the tray. And then from across the room, a distance of at least 30 feet, the tray was brought to me by that apparently limitless tentacle. It set the tray next to mine, and was then drawn back into Blagnarok's body, like the cord of a vacuum returning to the chassis. The retracted limb had left a thin, slimy sheen on the tray and a few of the chicken tacos. The affected tacos seemed to dissolve right before my eyes, as if glazed or sprayed with some highly caustic element. Blagnarok's eyes now focused on me, blinked rapidly, uncannily, and I interpreted this terrifying performance as an expression of good cheer, like that of a friendly stranger smiling to you from across the bar after having sent a pitcher of beer to your table. In response, I gave the entity a meek thumbs up, and after a few seconds more of that unsettling eye flashing, it turned its attention to the food-laden trays beneath it. With no further thoughts, Blagnarok began eating. The clot again shifted, now becoming a purple typhonic cyclone, into which food was drawn at random. Burgers, fries, and nuggets and tacos were all sucked into the torrential vortex. All of the items over $200 worth of food were consumed within a few seconds. Once the trays were clear, Blagnarok casually sipped at its soda, an action facilitated by a slightly less chaotic suctioning, 
Drop by drop, the beverage was drawn into the whirling cloud. Beyond disturbed, I only managed to eat a few fries and take a few bites of my burger before feeling full. Not wanting to offend the horror, and potentially encourage its surely hellish wrath. I forced myself to finish most of what it had shared with me, even these slime-stained tacos, which tasted unsurprisingly awful, as if I had instead eaten layer upon layer of the yellowed, tom-soiled linen of some antidevolian mummy. I then covertly deposited the rest of the meal into a nearby trash receptacle after swiftly leaving my table. Without turning toward Black, I passed by the counter, mouthed good luck to the fear-stricken workers peeking through the kitchen's little window, and I left the restaurant. As I stepped onto the parking lot, I heard one final thought transmission, and it sent me running madly across the lot to my vehicle. Ugh, I'm still so hungry. I should have ordered those cookies. Now they're taking them away for the night. What a bummer. Hmm, once I finish this drink, I'll see if that other human is still around. Maybe snack on them if they haven't left. Gotta see what organs humans can't live without first. Let me just goggle it really quick. I'm sure you can understand and even forgive my subsequent violation of virtually every traffic law as I sped away from the restaurant. This week's sponsor for Creepscast is Best Fiends, the free-to-download mobile game sensation that's sweeping the nation. This summer has been extremely busy for me personally. I've had a lot of projects and goals that I've been working towards, both with the channel and in real life. Between all the commotion and busyness, it's nice to relax and unwind when I find a few spare moments. And nothing helps me unwind more than Best Fiends. I find that sometimes the best way to hit the reset button is by giving myself a fun little challenge that I can casually keep up with day to day. Recently, that's been challenging myself to push further and further into the thousands of puzzles that Best Fiends has to offer. I'm already on level 206 and I'm having a blast. My personal goal is to hit level 500 and I'm confident that I'll get there eventually. Trust me. Once you pick this game up, you won't want to put it down. There's a reason Best Fiends has 100 million downloads. And did I mention that it's free? There's no reason not to give it a shot. Download the 5-star rated puzzle game, Best Fiends, free today in the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. I work for Airline Crash and Recovery. We found something strange at the last crash site. Written by Jiha4421 I work for airline crash and recovery. The job isn't hard. Most planes stay in the air after all. However, there is a crash nearly 10 years ago that is now allowed to be released to the public. Unfortunately, aviation laws forbid me from releasing the actual black box recording, but I decided to take it upon myself to release the transcript. I was, of course, given permission by the authorizing individual. I figured you guys would find it interesting. 
The plane was Boeing manufactured, two engines, and had been in service for several years without any notable defects. The specific model name is being redacted to protect possible exploitation for jets currently in service. Also of note, the aircraft's navigation system had recently been replaced as a standard time required action. It was fairly new. The names in this transcript have been changed to protect the identities of those who have passed. Here are the notable role players in the audio file. Names selected from a randomly generated name creator. Pilot, Marcus Tiver. Co-pilot, Vincent Algarez. Navigation, Paul Burton. All had been serving under the same company for nearly 15 years or more. All had clean records and good family lives. Paul had considerable debt, but this is unlikely to affect the events that transpired considering he didn't have direct control of the aircraft. Here is the transcript. 2.35, April 14th, 2009. The first hour considered mostly of the three in the cabin preparing the aircraft for takeoff. After the doors were shut, the pilot began talking into the mic to the passengers. Good morning, ladies and gents. This is your captain speaking, and I would like to welcome you aboard our flight. We're looking at about eight hours, give or take, to London, and should be arrived at around five in the afternoon local time. A complimentary hot meal will be served and it'll be either fish or veggie pasta. We hope that you take this time to familiarize yourself with our emergency protocols, and our flight attendants will demonstrate how to utilize the life jacket in case of an emergency. Overhead our gas masks if we encounter a loss of cabin pressure, and remember to secure your own before assisting others. In the unfortunate case that we land in a body of water, rafts will deploy from the sides of the aircraft Please note of the nearest emergency exit to you. Vincent. Hey, we're looking pretty good on fuel. Enough for a short hop and a skip across the pond and then some. Paul. Haven't gotten confirmation on flight path yet. Nav equipment is set and ready to go though. Mile 760, Chicago ground. Go ahead. Expect a delay for takeoff. There is some unexpectedly high air traffic coming in over the Atlantic. How long is the delay? We're trying to work that out with Bangor. Might be a mix-up with Iceland Air. When we get a word on a window, we'll let you know. Copy. When we get this flight over with fast enough, could return back in time before the bars close. You serious? I am. And don't call me Shirley. You're stupid. Now 760 Chicago ground. Go ahead. Ground, the air traffic situation is going to be complicated, but Bangor has given you a window if you divert north. They say it may be a half hour diversion. We're fueled up for two hours longer than we need for the prearranged flight path. Copy. They'll give you guidance when you enter their airspace. As for your departure from this airport... You'll have a 20-minute window for takeoff in 15 minutes. Copies. At this time, flight attendants, please secure the main cabins and prepare for takeoff. Ground crew, prepare us for taxi. 
You're ready for engine start. Push back vehicle hooked up. Starting engines. Engine 1 is started. Engine 2 is started right after. May all indications are green. Initiate pushback. The aircraft gets pushed back. Vehicle disengaged. Hey, thank you. Safe to disconnect ground. Thank you. Have a safe flight. L760, take taxiway H and stop at the hold short line for runway 70. Ground, take taxiway H and hold short, runway 70. Copy and over. The aircraft moves to hold short line and then proceeds to wait. L760, you are clear for takeoff on runway 70. Climb to 10,000 feet and reorient to 64 degrees cardinal and continue climb out. Call back when at cruise altitude. Ground, take off on runway 70. Climb to 10,000, reorient to 64 degrees cardinal and continue climb out. Copy and over. Passengers, we are clear for takeoff. The aircraft revs up and it takes off. At 10,000 feet, the aircraft reorients itself and continues to climb. Chicago Ground, L760. Continue trajectory. Enjoy your flight. Copy that. Have a good night. 410, April 14th, 2009. Flight L760, Bangor. Hey, Bangor, go ahead. We are monitoring a, uh, air traffic situation over the Atlantic. We ask that you remain patient for the time being. As of now, we request that you deviate north by 2 degrees and redeviate when you reach halfway into your flight. New flight plan approved. Thanks, ground. This may change if the situation doesn't resolve. We've delayed a few departures due to this issue. It may require you to land before you reach the Atlantic, but for now, you're clear. Am I at liberty to know what is going on? At this time, nobody knows what's going on. Thanks, ground. We'll monitor radio frequencies for future deviations. Should we let the cabin know? Go ahead. Passengers, this is your co-pilot. Just to let you know that we have been told there might be a chance that we may be landed in Bangor. We will update as soon as we get info. Strange that they're having us divert over the ocean. We didn't have any projected weather. They said something about air traffic issues. Probably a flight or two clogging the airspace. These flights are scheduled months in advance. Maybe some rich guy taking a private trip over the Atlantic. At this hour. I've diverted before. This isn't unusual. They seemed confused about what was going on. You never fly it over Bangor. They're always confused. Maybe it's a ghost plane. A what? You know, like a ghost ship, but a plane. <laughs> We're the ones they pay to fly this. Flight L-760, the situation over the Atlantic has resolved itself. For now, you may resume with the original flight path. We're no longer diverting north. That is correct. Roger that. I think I'm going to get some shut-eye. Wake me when we're four hours out and you can take yours, Vincent. Paul, if you want to, you can also take a rest. Roger, who will do. 6.20, April 14th, 2009. Marcus, Marcus. 
Man, wake up, Marcus. What? Hey, I think you need to look at this. What's going on? Where are we? Still over the Atlantic. Look at that. I don't see anything. What are you pointing at? It's under the cloud cover. It's skimming the ocean surface. What the heck is that? Is that another plane? No way, look how fast it's going. It looks like a capsule. Now wake Paul up. Paul. Paul. What? You getting anything on your radar? What the? What do you think it is? There's multiple. What? There's a bunch of these things popping up on my screen. They're just zooming past us. I only see one. My god, look in the clouds, look. Holy crap, what the heck? There's a formation of them. A military exercise. Those aren't military planes. Well, they're not civilian either. Don't say it. Aliens? I said don't say it. I'm not kidding. Look how fast it is. We're too far from any ground tower. No way to confirm what we're seeing. Bangor said there was some bizarre air traffic going on. Maybe this is it. Should we turn back? No, we're just going to leave them alone and continue on. I'm going to take some pictures. I'm going to try and communicate with them. Why? They're too close to our airspace. They probably don't speak any recognizable language. Stop with the UFO nonsense. Look at the shape of that thing. It's like a flying tic-tac and it's going twice our speed. We will talk to authorities when we land in London. Let them know what we saw. That's still four hours away. If I can't communicate with them, then I vote we turn around. We're not bringing this up to a vote. This is a flight safety issue. We don't know what their flight path is. Any aircraft that can hear this transmission, please identify yourself. My god, they're coming together. This is flight L760, please. If you can hear this transmission, identify yourself and your flight path. Are they ascending? They're realigning. Holy crap, they're pointing at us. They're coming up fast. You are approaching a commercial flight. Divert, divert. How can they do that? The throttles were aggressively accelerated and the plane made a sharp turn. At this point, there is a lot of static. The crew sounds like they're panicking as they turn the aircraft, but it is largely inaudible. This inaudibility lasts for 10 minutes with the static reaching a climax midway through this section. Is it still there? I, I don't see it. How close did it get? It was right in front of us. Crap, man, come on. Do you think it saw us? It turned in midair, like it was trying to orient itself with us. How is that possible? We're not flying over the ocean with these, these things out there. We're turning this around. That may not be a good idea. Our navigation equipment has gone haywire. What? 
Something disrupted our GPS locator. It isn't tracking us anymore. It lost all power. Our generators are fluctuating too. How long have we been flying over the Atlantic? Almost an hour and a half. How much fuel? About five hours of flight left. There's a knock on the door, and the door is opened slightly ajar. It's one of the flight attendants. Sir, sorry to bother you, Marcus, but the cabin lights have gone out, and the USB chargers aren't working anymore. There's been an electrical issue. We're tracking and turning this thing around. The door closes. We can't tell anyone else what we saw. Not until we're back over land. You really think that was a UFO? What do you mean? You freaking saw it, man. No engines on that thing. It turned around mid-flight. Kept zigzagging around like the laws of gravity didn't apply. Alright, listen up. Paul, I want you to try and get our navigation equipment running again. Restart the system. Try cycling circuit breakers. Vincent, you monitor engines. Let me know if anything starts acting up. Everything is running off a backup power source, but the engine indications are the only things working right. Were we EMP'd? There was silence for about 30 seconds. I... I don't know. I'm going to tell the passengers that we're heading back to land. Don't say anything about what we saw. I wouldn't even know what to say. At this time, the aircraft maneuvered around supposedly to reorient itself back towards Maine. After the plane is directed back towards the Americas, the pilots gasp and scream. It's still following us. Holy crap. I can see it at the edge of my window. A sonic boom can be heard at this time. Where's it going? I don't care. Vincent, tell the cabin we're going back. Does the on-flight radio work? This is your co-pilot speaking. We are encountering an electrical issue, and will have to return back to Bangor. Don't worry, this does not impact our ability to fly the aircraft, but we are turning this back to Maine for some quick maintenance. I'm never flying over the ocean again. 7.51, April 14th, 2009 Still no sign of land. How long have we been flying for? We've been going west, slightly south for an hour and a half now. We should be coming across some island soon. We should have been seeing the coast of Newfoundland by now. Paul, please, try to get the navigation system working again. I've tried everything, multiple times. The entire system is fried. We are flying directly west. We should be seeing Canada by now. Maybe we're just getting close. We're flying against the wind, after all. May 27, April 14th, 2009. Where are we? We have about three hours left of fuel. We're still over the ocean. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure we turn the right way. 180 degrees. The sun is behind us. You see those reflections in the distance. I think those might be the vessels. They're moving so fast. 
My god. What the heck is going on out here? 9-10, April 14th, 2009. Bangor Ground, L-760. It's no use. Bangor Ground, L-760. What do we do if we need to land in the ocean? We're not landing in the ocean. Oh god. Oh god. It's back. The throttles are advanced all the way up. It's catching up to us. We're going to crash into it. Go, go, go. Nose up, nose up. The plane veers upwards as the pilot tries to outmaneuver whatever it is they're seeing. We're losing so much fuel. We need to slow down. It's right behind us. Marcus, we only have an hour and a half of fuel and we're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. We have no idea where the nearest landmass is. It might not be trying to ram us. Well, I'm not going to find out the hard way. Then we'll run out of fuel and die. I'm going to try and contact it again. We don't know what it is or what it wants. If this truly is extraterrestrial, it likely doesn't want anything to do with a couple of washed up pilots and nobodies. After 30 seconds of silence, the throttles are brought down to altitude cruise. It's slowing down with us. It's so smooth, pale white. It's completely featureless. We need to find land. After Paul's radio frequencies are adjusted to a certain wavelength, there's a loud screeching and clicking occurring over the radio frequency. The three men audibly groan as the signal intensifies. Then presumably, the signal dies out. It's leaving again. We're going to crash in the Atlantic. Don't say that. We keep traveling with the sun. We'll hit land soon. We don't have enough fuel to land. We'll find a strip if we have to. 10-20, April 14th, 2009. As the pilot speaks, the faint sound of someone crying in the back can be heard. This is either the co-pilot or the navigator. This is Marcus Tiver, pilot of flight L-760. My co-pilot is Vincent Alvarez. The navigator is Paul Burton. We came across some mysterious unknown phenomena, and have now been seemingly knocked so far off course that we have gone west for several hours and not hit any land. We are currently flying over the Atlantic at an altitude of 35,000 feet, give or take. Our altimeter isn't working, so I'm basing that off my observation. We are about to start descending as we only have 30 minutes of fuel left, and we will attempt to make a water landing if we are unable to find land. There are 140 souls on board. Currently, there is something shining in the distance, but I know that it's the reflection of the things that followed us. I hope we make it, but I don't have much hope. I will continue to monitor frequencies in the event that someone can contact us, or vice versa. End transcript. Well, that's it. Nobody really knows what exactly the pilots think they encountered. Several aviation experts were brought in, and not many could come up with a reasonable explanation that would answer the failing of the equipment and the perceived paranoia of all three on board. Flight paths were researched and the militaries of over a dozen countries were investigated. None had said that they were doing training exercises over the Atlantic that day. Flight L-760 was discovered off the coast of Newfoundland 
And if you've never heard of it, there's a good reason. Regarding a lot of the mysterious circumstances of the flight and due to the unknowns, reporting of the crash were censored. Now that it's been several years and no new understandings of the incident have surfaced, it's been officially released. I thought it would be a good time to post this in hopes that anyone might be able to present their own ideas. The final interesting fact about this flight is that, during our initial investigation of the crash, it would have appeared to be perfectly survivable. The aircraft landed on the belly, and the landing gears were used as an attempt to cushion the land. However, none of the crew or passengers were ever found, and there had been no findings of any of their bodies. My father made his hide when the wind chimes rang, written by Blue Wake. My father was a superstitious man. When I was growing up, he hung wind chimes so they surrounded the outside of our home. There were wind chimes in the strangest places. Some hung from hooks fixed to the windowsills outside the bedroom that I shared with my younger sister, Isabella. Others swung from a post in the backyard. On our small front porch, wind chimes of all sizes and colors partly obscured the view of the street. When the wind chimes rang, my father would usher Isabella and I into a closet in our house. We were never to leave until he retrieved us or if we were alone. When the airy jingling of the chimes had settled into silence, as a small child, I accepted my father's instructions without thought. As the years went on, I questioned why Isabella and I followed these strange rules. Even if Isabella and I were outside, we had to return home immediately when the chimes rang. This meant I could never play outside with my friends in the neighborhood on windy days and I resented it. One day, I asked him why we had to hide when the wind chimes rang. It's because of Willie Windchime, my father muttered, without further explanation. Unsatisfied, I complained to my mother. I told her how embarrassing it was to have to leave my friends Whenever I heard the stupid sound of wind chimes, my mother explained that my father's rules were a cultural difference. My parents had immigrated from Latin America, and my father brought some traditions and superstitions with him. My mother reminded me to never be ashamed of this, and said it was better that I followed my father's rules. One Saturday morning when I was 11, my sister and I were watching cartoons when the wind chimes began to ring. We knew the protocol and entered the closet without our father asking. The closet was dark and cramped, filled with mountains of old clothing. While hiding, 
Isabella and I always tried to find ways to pass the time. We would play games like chopsticks and rock, paper, scissors. This time, we decided to play dress up. While digging through shoeboxes in the back of the closet, I listened to the sounds filtering in from outside. In addition to the ringing of the chimes, I heard the faint rush of footsteps in the street. The window must have been open. I imagined neighborhood kids playing tag or hopscotch outside, all while Isabella and I wasted our Saturday in a closet. I noticed a small wooden box near the back of a shelf. It was unassuming, the wood warped and dust covered. Thinking that it must be a jewelry box, I took it from the shelf and I removed its lid. It was empty save for a single Polaroid, which sat face down. I noticed words written in faded ink next to one of its frayed corners. Esteban, 1967 The sounds of the wind chimes clanging against each other grew more intense as I reached inside the box. I slowly turned the old Polaroid over, careful not to tear it. The photo was of a boy about my age, wearing a school uniform and sitting on a stoop. His brown skin and infectious smile, twinkle in his eyes, reminded me of my father's. It couldn't have been my father though. His name was not Esteban. I pocketed the Polaroid and waited with Isabella for the chimes to stop ringing. A few minutes later, my father told us it was okay to come back out. Papa, I asked, who's the boy in this picture? I produced the Polaroid I had found in the closet. My father flinched upon seeing the photo. He was such a strong, stoic man. And until then, I had never seen such pain in his eyes. He snatched the photo from my hand. Anna Maria, he barked, pointing a finger in my face. It is wrong to snoop through other people's possessions. I raised you better than that. What else am I supposed to do when you lock me in a closet? I shot back. It's not fair. I want to go outside. Years of frustration with my father's rules boiled over and escaped in the form of the hot tears which streamed down my cheeks. My father glanced at the Polaroid again, and his face softened. He knelt in front of me and took my hands. My Hia, he said. I know you do not understand, but you must promise me that you will follow the rules. When you hear the wind chimes, you and Isabella must remain in the closet together.
I promised him that I would. He turned away and retreated to the bedroom. He paused for a moment by the window, casting a longing glance into the street. I broke my promise a few days later. Isabella and I had taken the bus home after school and would be alone until our parents returned from work. I was doing a school assignment when the wind chimes outside broke out into a chorus of rings. My reflex was to grab Isabella and enter the closet as I had been taught to do. But as we waited in the closet, the ringing continued with no sign of stopping. Feelings of defiance stirred inside of me. Why should I follow this dumb rule? It's just the wind. The ringing escalated. Dozens of wind chimes combining into one eerie, discordant tone. Listening closely, I thought I heard footsteps. I imagined that the neighborhood kids were outside, playing together gleefully. I put my hand on the doorknob and began to turn. Anna Maria, Isabella protested. We're supposed to wait. I'll be back soon, I said. Stay here. I flung the closet doors open and made my way to the front door. The chimes clashed against each other now, as if in the midst of some turbulent storm. As far as I could tell, the weather outside was calm. The footsteps were clearly audible, but sounded different. Before, I could have sworn I had heard the irregular pitter-patter of children playing. But now they took on the steady cadence of a military march. I opened the front door and stepped out onto the porch. A single file line of children stretched as far down the street as I could see. They trudged past the house, their eyes fixed ahead of them as if in a trance. The chimes on our porch beat against each other with electric fury. A few houses scattered along the street had a single wind chimes outside and they rang too. There was no breeze in the air. Some of the children wore clothing like mine. Others wore outfits that looked old or foreign. At the head of the strange parade stood the only adult in sight. A tall figure. He wore colorful, patterned clothing that reminded me of a court jester's costume. Atop his head, set a similarly patterned top hat from which wisps of stringy hair flowed. I knew that this was the person my father once mentioned. The reason my sister and I had to hide in the closet. Willie Winchime. He turned towards me and grinned. A voice in the back of my head told me I had made a mistake that I should go back inside and into the closet and wait. But something, something drowned that voice out. 
a sort of pull I felt towards Willie Windchime's parade. Something about Willie felt warm and inviting. And besides, what could I want more than so many new friends? The parade stopped, awaiting my entrance into its ranks. Stepping closer to the line of children, my gaze fell upon the boy in his school uniform. Though he faced the front of the line and no longer smiled, there was no doubt it was the boy from the Polaroid. His head snapped to the right, facing me. He opened his mouth, pausing for a second, as if struggling to speak to me. The only sounds which escaped him were the high-pitched ring of wind chimes. Without warning, a hand covered my eyes from behind me. I felt myself yanked backwards, my sneakers dragging along the pavement. Whoever had grabbed me had adult strength. I imagined Willie Windchime behind me, and I snapped out of whatever haze had come over me. I was too late, I thought. I was being carried to the back of that unending line of kids, and I knew once I walked with it, I would walk with it forever. I felt myself carried up the flight of steps, and I heard louder the tinkle of dozens of wind chimes. I realized I was being carried up the front steps of my house. The man who hauled me away was not Willie Windchime after all. He was my father. My father rushed me wordlessly into the closet where Isabella still was and slammed the door. He let us out only after the chimes had stopped ringing. That night, my father sat me down to have a talk. He said that it was time I knew the truth. When my father was growing up, there was a folktale passed down in his neighborhood about a strange man who stole children. According to the folktale, when chimes rang when the man passed by, even on calm days, every house in the neighborhood hung wind chimes to warn children when he was coming. Kids were expected to stay inside when the chimes rang. My father had a brother he had never told Isabella and I about. His name was Esteban. Papa cried when he spoke his name. Esteban was one year older than he and his best friend. Esteban was a good-hearted kid, but he had a mind of his own. One day, when my father and his brother were playing outside, the chimes began to sound. Esteban was sick of having to return home when the wind chimes rang. He decided he would prove to everyone that he could stay outside, and the strange man's parade would pass him by. If he could do that... The local kids would never be forced to hide again. My father begged Esteban to come inside, but Esteban didn't budge. 
My father ran home to hide, praying that the man would not take his brother. Esteban never returned. Years later, my father had two kids of his own. He pledged that we would never suffer the same fate as Esteban. Whenever the wind chimes rang, he hid Isabella and I away and waited by the window. He watched with sadness as Willie Windchime's parade passed by, the only way to see his brother again. He made me swear that until Isabella and I were both old enough, that we would hide at the first sound of Windchime's together. This time, I kept my promise. Years have passed and I am my own son. His name is Esteban, in honor of my uncle. When I hear the many wind chimes outside begin to ring, I shepherd him into the closet. He stays there until all is quiet again. If you ever hear wind chimes on a windless day, hide your children. I'm in the military and I've been sent to investigate strange occurrences in New Mexico. Written by Doc Rosie. I would like to start off by saying that I've never really been into the idea of the paranormal, nor the otherworldly. I thought them as nothing more than just stories meant to keep me and my brother from being bad kids. But ever since being stationed on a Marine Corps base in New Mexico, that has drastically changed. My main special agent in the military meant I can't give away my rank, but I am an officer and a fairly young one at that, so I deal with a lot of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes in the military that you don't hear about. I also do medical work due to me getting a degree in health sciences, so I can give support when needed on certain events that require it. The things on this base for the most part are very dull and plain. It's in the middle of nowhere, close to Navajo country, so there really isn't much to do. I even started to question why I had been assigned this duty, but that was until I was tasked with medical coverage for a 12-mile hike that would last for two days. And the beginning of the hike was uneventful. We made camp somewhere in a prairie full of vegetation under the desert night. It was my first time seeing the stars where little light pollution interfered. It looked beautiful, and I was lost in the beauty of it. It looked like something a renaissance artist would draw. My stargazing was interrupted by a loud conversation going on next to me. Dude, I swear that I saw something watching me go to the bathroom from beyond the prairie. It was sitting on something. Bro, come on off it if you're trying to scare me. It's not going to work this time. You guys already pranked me once. It was probably just an animal or something. That was no animal. It looked human. It stood on two feet and everything I'm telling ya. It walked just as we did. I think you've had too much to drink. Come on, we should go back to the tent with the rest of the guys. Yeah, maybe you're right. Let's go. Being the person that I was, I decided to walk out to where he had allegedly saw the thing, and I started to investigate. All I saw was a puddle of where he went to the bathroom, 
that quickly went from a puddle to a trail of it leading back to the campsite. I let out a slight chuckle, and I was about to turn around when I saw something walking away in the distance. It was tall and pale with extremities reaching past its knees. Its body was slim, with fingers too long to be human. It walked slowly but methodically. I decided to follow it with my weapon in hand and I loaded and tailed the creature. For about a mile it led me to a cliffside where it took a seat on a rock. I ducked behind a large tree. I know you're out there. Come on out from your hiding spot. There's no use in hiding. The voice. It sounded like a man speaking through a microphone. It echoed when there was no possible way for it to echo. And it was deep. I spoke. How did you know I was here? And how long have you known? You pick up hints when you're sitting on a rock, enjoying a night of stars in the desert. And you look to your left, to see some guy staring at you while he's peeing. You should have seen the look on his face when I stared back. He ran away so fast with, you know what, running down his leg. I knew that it would only be a matter of time until he told someone. I was joking around. I knew where on the map he was. It knew where guns were, and he could swear. This creature was no ordinary creature. He knew his way. He understood the concept of human interaction. I questioned him. Where did you come from? My friend, I come from the darkness. Uh, the darkness? You see, I was born in the darkness molded by it. I didn't think I would see the light until... I cut him off. Okay, that's enough. I've seen the dark night and you don't look like Bane to me. Fair enough. If I put some muscle on though and get juiced up, I bet I could. Yeah, okay, whatever. Sorry for ruining your night. You really shouldn't be watching people from a distance creepily. Well, your buddy shouldn't have been staring at me while taking a you-know-what. I tried to avoid eye contact. That's like using the stall next to someone in the bathroom when there are four more open, and looking him in the eye and starting a conversation, and then patting him on the back. Fair enough. Must have been pretty awkward. Very well, I'm glad you understand. You guys shouldn't be so careless out here. Other things more terrifying than me lurk in these deserts. What do you mean by other things? But before I could get an answer, I blinked and it was gone. That single encounter proved to me that I'd gotten myself into something that was only about to get more strange. The next day, we hiked back to base but something was wrong when we had called attendance. We noticed that two marines were missing. Myself and another marine officer named Chaska were tasked to go find them. Chaska was a pretty cool guy. He was from around here and he grew up on the Navajo reservation, so I knew that I was in good hands. We made our way to some caverns near the campsite where we assumed that the marines went. Telling from the footprints, which strangely turned into the look of something being dragged through the sand. I looked at Chaska and he was pale and he knew something bad had happened. We both exchanged worried looks and ventured further into the caves. It was a maze straight out of a Greek mythology book. With a fork in the middle, it was a confusing maze, and a situation where it is difficult to know which direction to take. 
Chaska spoke. Look, man, I don't know what you believe in, but no matter what, you need to listen to me. From what I've seen so far, I think something dragged two full-grown marines into this cave and did God knows what to them. So I'm going to give you this one rule and you have to follow it no matter what. If you hear me call your name, wait until I call it three times and not once. Not twice, three, you got it. Keep this road tied to you, I've tied it to a secure point in the front of the cave, so that we can find our way back. Got it. Just make sure your weapon is loaded, and I'll go left and you go right. We parted ways and instantly, I felt lost and on edge of every drop of water made me look behind myself. Every stalagmite gave me a heart attack, almost making me draw my weapon. I made my way deeper into the cave when I started hearing whispers. I then heard my name, and I saw Chaska waving me on. I started walking towards him, but before I could take another step, I was pulled by my rope from behind and put behind a rock with a hand over my mouth. It was Chaska. He held a finger to his lips and we slid behind the rock with our weapons in hand. He motioned me to peek from behind the rock. And what I saw was something that defied reality. It was a large creature, as tall as a tree. The body was skeletal and deformed, with missing lips and toes and jagged teeth. Its breath was a strange hiss, its footprints full of blood, and it ate any man, woman, or child who ventured into its territory. A foul stench was present in the air. An unseasonable chill proceeded with its approach. This creature was the Whitico. It is said the Whitico chose to possess a person instead, and then the luckless individual became a Whitico himself, hunting down those he had once loved and feasting upon their flesh. The strong sense of fear I felt was indescribable. This was not natural fear but powerful, primitive, and the core of basic human emotion. That shot my adrenaline through the roof, making all six senses go wild. This was worst case scenario. I looked at Chaska to see if he would engage or stand down, but when our eyes met, he gave me the signal to wait. His eyes then highlighted with the thought of an idea, and he looked at me and pointed to the ceiling. There were sharp stalactites hanging from the ceiling. We both nodded. We looked up the ceiling and we were about to shoot when it spoke. Come out, come out, wherever you are, boys. I know you're out there. Come join your friends. I then started to mimic their voices, and it didn't sound human at all. It sounded distorted and guttural. Our eyes both grew wide, knowing the outcome of our fallen comrades. Chaska then counted to three, using his fingers. One, two, three. We let loose fire on the stalactites. They came raining down on the creature, impaling it through its whole body. Run! Chaska yelled. We booted back to the entrance, following the rope trail. We broke the cave entrance, and the thing did not give chase, guessing that it was pinned to the floor. But still Chaska removed two charges from his backpack. He set them to the entrance roof of the caverns, and he blew them. The cavern was sealed off, and the creature could no longer escape. We returned and reported to our superiors that we could not find the marines and reported them as missing. From what I heard, 
Missing cases in the area tend to not get solved due to certain circumstances. That's all I can say for now without giving away anything classified. But we still get reports from some marines that, in the middle of the night, they can still hear their missing comrades' voices coming from the desert, beckoning them to come and help them in the desert. We have passed word to ignore it, and even made up an excuse to discredit the voices saying that it's just the wind. I have more stories, but I've run out of time for now. I have to get back to work. Boss wants a report on what happened, and it's going to take all day to write it. I'll be in touch soon. I've decided to read two files from my old assignments. I've got to be quick though. I'm on schedule to go meet with Chaska tonight at the smoke pit. He didn't tell me what he wanted, but he didn't want anybody to know. He just wanted it to be me and him. The first report that I'll recount to you is an interview with a marine whose whole squad fell victim to an attack by an unidentified creature. For your safety, I'm going to leave out the location. We don't need anyone else getting hurt, nor do we want people investigating the matter themselves. On November 17th, 2020, Lance Corporal Redacted was found outside the gates of his base collapsed. When examined, he was dehydrated, had severe bruising, and was unresponsive. He was rushed to the on-base clinic, where he was revived and all these severe wounds were treated. He was then escorted to the briefing room, where he was interviewed by Captain Redacted. The interview went as such. Good morning, Corporal. I'm with an investigation agency and we want to investigate what happened to you and your squad. So the commander of the base can act appropriately on the matter. So tell me everything that happened. And please, do not leave out a single detail. Everything you say will help us. Yes, sir. We arrived at Camp Redacted at 13.30. After a six-mile hike, we were tired so we set up camp four miles away from a mouth of a cave. We didn't know then, but the locals called this cave Harry Man's Cave. Many locals refused to go. Everyone had settled down for the night. Everyone but me. I was on fire watch, so I had to guard the perimeter of the base. Everything was going fine until in the distance. I saw something that appeared to be a man, but it didn't really fit the definition of it. It was tall with its head, dang near touching the lowest branch on a tree. It was covered in shaggy what I assumed to be dark hair, and it had eyes that glowed in the night. I comforted my eyes by reassuring myself that it was nothing but a little bit of sleep deprivation and nothing but my imagination. Just like as a kid, I had found nothing when I checked under my bed for the monster, or how I had discovered these scratching beasts outside my bedroom were little more than the branches of an old tree. I was relieved of my duty at midnight, and I wondered if I should have told my replacement about the thing that I saw, but I didn't due to not wanting to look like a maniac. I returned to my tent, and as I closed my eyes and curled up, trying to get rid of some of the chill from the cool night air, I kept telling myself that that thing I saw couldn't be real, that the idea of a hairy man just didn't make sense enough to manifest itself into reality. And then it happened. The guard could be heard yelling at something at the mouth of the cave. Halt there. Identify yourself. 
I peeked out through my hole in my tent and it was the same creature I had seen earlier. It was standing in front of the cave. In the blink of an eye, it ran out from the entrance of the cave. It mauled the poor guard, ripping all his limbs off effortlessly. It then saw me peeking through my tent, and it smashed into it with such force that it tore it apart. Terrified, I tried to get to my feet, but I was powerless as the tent collapsed all around me, and the figure beat down repeatedly, heavy blows that eventually knocked me unconscious. After what seemed like an eternity, I woke up to find myself laying in a dark cave, a large figure sitting opposite of me and watching with unblinking eyes that burned in the darkness. Frozen in terror, I stared at the figure for a few minutes, the stench of rotten meat. I already knew that some of those smells belonged to the bodies of my fallen brothers, and it began to make me feel sick, and I felt pain across my entire body. The figure then flashed a grotesque smile, showing iron teeth that were jagged and continually ground against each other, making a horrible sound in the process. The figure then proceeded to stand up, showing horribly long arms that began to drag across the ground as it came forward. Large feet showing toes that were gnarled and broken, having many more toes than an ordinary man. Not that I had longed to think on this before, a large hand reached over and grabbed me, tossing me over a hairy shoulder as I kicked and shouted in fear. The figure didn't even flinch as he carried me over its shoulder and out of the cave. My kicked and screamed for what seemed like hours as the hairy creature trotted along a worn path in the woods nearby, eventually tossing me to the ground and standing over me. Covered in mud, bruised and terrified, I scrambled to my feet and ran down the path, not daring to look back, as I fled the area and stumbled my way back to the gate and succumbed to my injuries where the gate guards had found me. The second report comes from Redacted. This is an interview I did personally. It was an account from an eight-year-old girl. Her family was on a camping trip on base where her and her brother went to go play in the forest. The family grew worried after some time had passed and Right when they were about to call the quits and send the rangers home, she came back but her brother didn't. The interview went as such, and the girl had been given a false name to protect the family and her identity. She was being questioned by the rangers when my organization stepped in and took her away to get more details. The interview went as such. Hello Annie, how's your day going today? Hello, mister. My day's going good. Me and mommy got ice cream before we left. It was really good. My favorite is Oreo. What's your favorite? That's a good choice, Annie. I would have to say my favorite is the special brand made by General Mills. It is based off of Lucky Charm, so it had marshmallows in it. I bet you would love it. I'll ask mom if I can try it one day. She said with excitement. So Annie, I'm here today to ask you about what happened to your brother. We need to know so we can find him and bring him back to you and your family. Do you think you can help me out with that? She looks to the ground with the previous smile draining from her face. You're not going to find him. He lost the game and the woman won't let him go. What woman? 
he went with the woman with the scary face. We were playing hide and seek when the woman said that she wanted to play. She answered it like it was the most normal thing in the world. I thought she may have been in some sort of emotional distress, but she didn't show any symptoms. Annie, when you mentioned her face, what did you mean? Her face was like a barn owl on a woman's face. She was tall and slender and she even had feathers on her arms. She could even fly and she offered us a ride. Okay, so what happened when you started playing with her? She said she would hide and that we needed to find her. We walked into the woods and she jumped down from a branch of a tree and said, Peekaboo, and started to fly after us saying that she was going to eat us. We started to cry because she had scared us. She said that she was only joking. She promised and crossed her heart and hoped to die. And so we started playing again. And then what happened to Annie? She said that it was our turn to hide and that she would give us 100 seconds. And then she would come to find us. We didn't know where we were now so we just ran into the trees. I hit behind a rock but it wasn't big enough for the two of us. So my brother went the other way. And I heard the woman say, Ready or not, here I come. What happened after that? I came back and talked to the men with the funny tan hats on. And my parents, they were really happy to see me. Annie, why did you come back and your brother didn't? Because she didn't find me. Her eyes then went from focusing on me to focusing on the window. And they grew big and she gasped. Annie, what's wrong? Nothing, it's just, I think I've said too much. Can I go home now? Her mother was called and Annie was sent home and I thanked her for her cooperation. 48 hours later, she was reported missing. Investigators said her bedroom window was smashed from the outside using a big rock. The dogs couldn't find her scent. And all they had were a regular size to feathers on the rooftop and a large owl pellet behind the house containing clothing that they last saw her brother in. Every occupant on that base was moved, and the base was shut down and sectioned off from the rest of the world. Families living around the area say in the dead of the night they can hear the flapping of wings over their houses, only to find very large feathers in the morning. That's all I got for now. The screen is making my eyes hurt. I'm going to go chill by the smoke pit and look at the stars. I'll catch you guys later. Let me start things off by saying that I've never truly been into the idea of secret government agencies or entities working behind the scenes like the men in black. But what happened tonight, and what I have become a part of, has changed that today. It all started when me and Chaska were throwing around a football, and brotherly bonding, he says... When the base alarm goes off, and military vehicles full of guards armed to the teeth are going down the street. The base alarm was initiated, and an officer came over the base intercom saying, Lockdown, lockdown, this is not a drill. Everyone to their respective barracks room, double time. Me and Chaska spent no time running back to our rooms, but not before I threw the football one good time hitting him square in the back of the head, and he fell on his face. Oh, what the? Tag, you're it. I'm gonna remember that one. He said while laughing childishly, and running to his room. 
Once I was at my room, I closed my door and I got a message from my superior. I have an assignment for you. This is an out of the ordinary assignment, but you proved yourself to be capable enough to take any hard task on. I have emailed you an encrypted email of where to go tonight to investigate the disappearances of Marines. I've got to go close the base down so no one will get in the way of your investigation. Be safe and be heavily armed. Huh, I thought to myself, that's strange. I then went to my laptop and opened up my email to see coordinates to the location that I was going. I packed food, just in case I got hungry, and went to the armory to get a high-powered weapon, a sword that was mounted on the wall. I took it because it looked really cool. And grenades in less than five minutes, I was on my way. My GPS took me to a site unfamiliar to me, but the site was all too brutal. It took me to a campsite that was absolutely destroyed. Searching the site went as expected given past events. It was completely derelict. Nothing in the dunes around me was making a single sound. There was only pure, dead silence. Whatever came through there did a pretty good job accounting of itself. Tents were ripped as if they had been through a paper shredder multiple times and were subsequently put into a blender. Droplets of red were everywhere, staining the surrounding rocks and what remained of the tents. A mangled body of a man, littered with large gashes and bite marks, lay a few feet away from the fire, dead campfire. I'm not the one for fairy tales and stuff, but this sounded exactly like a skinwalker attack. Skinwalkers are Navajo witches or warlocks capable of utilizing black magic to shapeshift into animals, either through possession or disguising by flaying the pelt off the animal and draping it over them, like some sort of demented suit of flesh and skin. And as I expected, that very method can be done to humans. From head to toe, his skin had been removed, usually in a very crude fashion, exposing layers and layers of peeled back flesh, lacerated muscles and exposed tendons. He was severely injured in appearance, as death by skinwalker is not a clean one. Dang, this guy got messed up pretty bad, said a random voice. I turned to see where the voice was coming from, and to my relief, it was Chaska. What are you doing here? You looked like you were about to go have some fun, and I figured, hey, why don't I tag along? I've got nothing else to do on this Friday night. I thought to myself and then decided to myself to let him come along. It looked like he had brought some weapons as well. After we were done studying the body, Chaska grabbed me by the back of my shirt and pulled me behind a rock. What are you doing? He put his hand over my mouth. His hands were sweating and his eyes were big. He motioned with his other hand to look over the rock, and what I saw was truly terrifying. It was a man. No, not a man. Something that simply mimicked the human form. It stood well over seven feet, and had antlers the size of a moose on its head. It had long arms with long claws at the end. Its eyes burned bright yellow, and the stench that came from its body was so wretched that if I didn't have a hand over my mouth, I would have vomited. It sniffed the air and then walked over to the body. Its gait that it walked with was disturbing. It walked as if one leg was longer than the other. It grabbed the marine's foot and dragged him into the desert towards the mouth of a cave. 
Once it was far enough away from me, Chaska and I looked at each other and knew that we had to make a plan. This was a skinwalker, but like animals, this was a different species. This species, from what I could tell, was bigger and stronger than your average skinwalker. So the plan had to be solid to take this thing down. And that was when a light bulb flashed in my head. I had it. From my bag, I pulled out a football. What the heck, you still got that from earlier? Yup, and I've got a plan. You see, here's what we're gonna do. I described the plan to Chaska, and he nodded. But I could tell that he was a bit worried about it. At 0300 hours, we started, Chaska and I made a lot of noise outside of the cave. Throwing the football back and forth and then on purpose, I threw it into the mouth of the cave. Come on dude, that was way too far, I'll go get it. Chaska then switched the regular football with an homemade explosive just in time. From the mouth of the cave came out the skinwalker wearing the marine skin. A horrid mangled mess was limping out of the cave. Its face looked like a mask that didn't fit well at all. Its posture was slumped over and hunched back. Worst of all was its voice. God, its voice sounded like a thousand whispers echoing inside of our heads. I prayed that Chaska would keep us cool. To be honest, he was doing a better job than I was. Oh, hey man, I haven't seen you in forever. You mind throwing the football back to me? I didn't mean to bother you. He said while looking up at the creature and nervously chuckling. In a horrid howl, it said the mangled words. Sure, let me help you. It reached down to grab the football. Alright man, I'll go long, just throw it when you're ready. Chaska then started running, as if he was running for a pass, and as soon as he was far enough, he detonated the football. It was really a handmade explosive filled up with silver and wolfsbane. The skinwalker howled in pain, and it ripped its skin off. In a fit of rage, it ripped off a stalagmite and threw it at Chaska, hitting his right arm. He fell to the ground, yelling in pain. Open fire. I lit the creature up, but I could tell that my gun wasn't doing anything. Chaska noticed it too, and he kicked me a clip of ammo with glimmering bullets in it. I took fire, and the creature started to show pain. The bullets shined in the night, and it made me realize that they weren't ordinary bullets, but they were silver. He knew what the thing's weakness was, and he knew exactly what to put in the explosive when I brought the idea up to him. After five minutes, the creature was done. I ran over and checked on Casca. His right arm had been nearly cut off from the skinwalker. I wrapped his arm as best as I could, and then he pulled a radio from his pocket and spoke with someone on the other line in codes that I couldn't understand. Cheska, what's going on, man? Is there something you need to tell me? I didn't want you to find out like this, but... I'm part of a secret government agency that hunts monsters like this on the regular. We are higher ranking than the FBI and the CIA. Not many people know that we even exist. But our name is Redacted. When we first encountered that one ago together, you displayed skills and planning that were capable of making you a high ranking member of our organization. This hunt solidified the idea. And someone would like to talk to you. Within five minutes, a helicopter landed on the ground, followed by two all-black military vehicles. A group of men got out and wrapped the skinwalker in a tarp and placed it in the back of one of the cars. 
From the helicopter, a large man walked out. He was tall and had very black hair. On his collar were three stars and in a loud booming voice, he greeted me. Hello, I've heard a lot about you from Chaska. You did some fine work here. Uh, thank you, sir, but what's going on here? Why are you taking the skinwalker away instead of getting rid of it? I'm sure you know that this is no ordinary skinwalker. It's a variant that needs to be studied to help understand the species, and how to understand how it works to prevent any more cases like this from happening. I'm sure Chaska would agree with me that if it wasn't for you, then we would have more bodies on our hands than just one. So, I would like to invite you to join our organization. As a Chaska's partner, what do you say? Are you in? I pondered and thought to myself, am I really cut out to be in this organization? I then looked at Chaska who was smiling and giving me a thumbs up with his one good arm. I then said, yes sir, I would be honored to join. Very well, I'll do the paperwork and talk to your superiors as soon as I get done with the skinwalker. Until then, look after Chaska while he recovers. I know he's a lot to handle sometime. If only you knew, sir. Hey, think fast. I turned to see a perfect spiral football heading towards my face. I wasn't quick enough to dodge it, and it nailed me right in the nose. I fell to the ground, stunned. You see, brother, I told you I wouldn't forget. He extended his good arm out to help me up, and I took it. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but I was ready to start my new job, hunting the things that go bump in the night. My family's guardian angel isn't an angel. Written by Sin117 Where to start this? Well, I guess I would have to begin by saying everyone in my family is sensitive to the paranormal side of things. Case in point, my sisters can hear the things that go bump in the night, while my father had a, a sort of guardian angel act as an early warning for when things are going to go bad. My mother never spoke about it to us, but her mother said she was sensitive too. As for me, well, I guess you could say I'm a sort of exorcist. I say sort of because the church recognizes me as the level of a deacon, meaning that I can hand out communion, but I can't give a sermon. This is probably why our family members are considered so strange, at least in a way. It isn't like we don't have friends or relationships. It is just that we don't perceive things the same as others do. Now, since that is out of the way, let's get into what happened. It was the middle of summer, so of course, the kids weren't at school. And a few of them thought it would be a nice to stop at my place on their way to their vacation spot. I would go with them, but you have to be invited. Then again, I'm not sure if I can even take off work. A decent job is getting difficult to come by for an old warhorse like me. Well, I am renting a rather large house for just one person. The rent in this area is pretty cheap, as long as you don't mind the commute. I'm an early riser anyway, so it wasn't a big deal. Regardless, 
They all arrived a bit late, which gave me enough time to have everything ready for when they came in. They had been on the road for several days at this point. That wouldn't be so bad except that there is no privacy on the road. That meant that everyone was a little pent up and needed to get some release from the drive. With the youngest kids, this simply meant letting them run around for a few hours, and of course, letting them swim in the pool. There was only one teenager, my nephew, at 14 years old, so he swam but I could tell he just wanted to find one of the neighbor girls to hang out with. Too bad for him, the closest neighbor's daughter was leaving for college in the fall. With all this moving around, it was nice to let the parents swim and then relax with a few cocktails. I even turned down the jacuzzi for them if they wanted. So, all in all, it was a nice afternoon for everyone. Nothing from that could have prepared us for what was going to happen. It must have been close to midnight when we finally got everyone to sleep. You would think after burning so much energy, the kids would have crashed out early, but nope. I gave my siblings and their spouses the beds while their kids were split between two of these smaller rooms. Yes, it is a four-bedroom, but that just meant that I had to crash on the couch. Nothing wrong with that, but it does make my sleep rather light. Though it was the summer, I woke up to a slight chill in the air. I may have had the fans running, but it shouldn't have felt that cold. I was about to go back to sleep when I saw something. In the reflection of the main window, I could see the shadow of someone walking across the living room. The only light silhouetting it came from the kitchen stove that I had left on in case someone needed something from the kitchen and they wouldn't have to turn another light on. This also put my side of the couch in complete darkness. Even if somebody looked into the reflection, they wouldn't see me. As I watched for a few moments, I realized that this shadow had a clearly female form to it, but something was very, very wrong. It almost looked like its hair was extremely tall, and it was carrying a backpack. What? I thought to myself as I gained more consciousness. That doesn't make sense. No one has their hair up like that unless they just got out of the shower, but if they did, they wouldn't have put on a pack. The seconds ticked by as I began to see it more clearly. It didn't walk, but instead it seemed to glide across the floor, as if it wasn't stepping on it. The hardwood floors didn't squeak. However, I should still feel the subtle changes of the floor with every step. But nothing. Silently, I watched as it went to the hallway where two bedrooms were. Once it was out of sight... I silently got up and I followed it. I looked down the hall just in time to see the very edge turn to the room that the kids were in. Okay, what the heck is going on? I silently said to myself as I got to the corner of the hallway. Looking around the corner, I could see that the door to the kids' room was almost completely open. The red light from the alarm clock showed enough for my eyes to see the first bed. There was my oldest niece, sound asleep, lightly snoring as I moved it slowly into the doorway. When I turned to look at the other bed, my heart skipped a beat and my blood ran cold. 
There was someone, or maybe I should say something, standing at the foot of my nephew's bed. It was staring at him as he silently slept. With the little bit of light I could make out, the silhouette of what it was. The form was clearly that of an adult female, and a well-developed one at that, but not overly so. The long hair that fell on her back flowed right up to a set of what looked like wings attached to its lower back, just above the pelvic bone. This was bad enough, but the stranger parts were the large horns that seemed to come out halfway between the hairline and the top of the head. These horns curled back, kind of like ram horns but did not curl back up to the ears. I was in shock at the sight of this woman that I had never seen standing in my house, seemingly watching over my kin. After about a minute, I saw my nephew roll into his back, and that's when something odd happened. There was a sudden smell of perfume in the air. It was very subtle at first, but soon it became overwhelming. Now, something you should know about me is that I hate the smell of a strong perfume. In fact, too much perfume has made me end dates early. So, the smell of this was not intoxicating as one might think but more nauseating to me. Once the smell had permeated the room enough that I had to hold my nose to keep from gagging, she reached down and began to pull the covers off of him. Reaching down, she slowly pulled the covers down past his feet, exposing him to the night air, and then she began to move up slowly up his body. That's when I saw his eyes burst open and the fear enter them. I could see him start to struggle but he was having trouble moving. From that point, she climbed onto the bed and began to hold him down by placing her hand on his shoulder while the other pushed his hand down. When she moved her leg up to straddle him, I tried to stop her. That is, I tried. My body didn't want to move. It was strange, but my muscles didn't want to respond to the commands that I gave them. I was confused as I feared I wouldn't be able to stop her. By now, I had figured out what it was. Even though the logical part of my brain fought me there, there was no denying the truth. What had come into my house for nefarious reasons? It was a succubus. Now I'm no spring chicken, so I know a few things about the paranormal. It doesn't hurt that I dated a witch before. Plus, I had a few tricks up my sleeve. It must have sensed my fear because it turned and looked at me still standing in the doorway. I looked at it right in the eyes, and I could see those green eyes looking back at me. These eyes were not green like you would think, but a dark green like you would see on a tractor. She still had her human irises, but the rest of her eye was that deep green. As she looked at me, her hands continued towards my nephew's body, as though it was slowly putting a dry rub on a brisket. And then she did something that I will never forget. She smiled at me. The smile was not filled with shark teeth like some would think, but instead, an almost human smile. The kind of smile someone gives you when they have pulled one over on you and you can't do anything about it. With sheer arrogance in her voice, she said to me, 
You're next. As I saw her hand begin to go lower on my nephew. While this was happening, her body seemed to get more and more visible, as though she was becoming solid. Thinking fast, I needed to find a way out of the paralysis. I could have kicked myself for not realizing it sooner, but the perfume must be the reason. So, if it was a chemical reaction, then I have something for it. You see, I'm not the only one that can adjust their chemical composition, at least for a while. Think of it as adjusting your brain to push off the effects of being drunk. Many people can do it, but it is a very temporary solution, and the headache that follows is far from fun. Using this, it only took a few seconds for me to break out of the paralysis and be able to move freely again. I could see the utter terror in my nephew's eyes as she lifted her body in order to get on top of him. Sprinting from my position, I jumped onto her causing us both to crash onto the floor. Being able to get her by surprise, I was able to take her back and get a choke on her. This proved difficult, as her horns prevented me from getting my arm into position, though I did get my other arm around her neck. Remembering my old training, I dug my heels into her thighs. It's a good thing too, because my training never covered how to do this when someone had powerful wings. She tried to pull my arm away from her neck, as she violently thrashed her wings. Her wings were so powerful that with each flap, we bounced and crashed around the room. Not training against people so thin, she was able to duck her jaw and bite down hard into my arm. So much I thought that she was going to take a piece out. And grabbing her ear, I pulled enough that she screamed and lifted her head to try and alleviate the pain. This just allowed me to reset my arm into her neck. I got her now, I thought, as I could feel her supple neck against my bicep muscle and forearm. The noise must have woken everyone up, because the lights flipped on as numerous people came running into the room. Cursing, coming out as the children were picked up and rushed out of the room. My brother tried to help me subdue this thing, but the violent thrashing made that impossible. I suddenly found myself wishing I had told them where I keep my firearms besides the safe. That is when that thing truly got serious. She took her tail and it penetrated my skin. Now, I've been shot before and I would rather do that a hundred times over than experience the pain I went through at that moment. And then something happened. I don't think she was really ready for her. Instead of letting go... All my muscles tightened, making it nearly impossible for her to breathe, cracking her ribs, and I started cursing and using the Lord's name in vain. As I calmed down a little, I was just saying, Oh God, oh God, oh God. And this made her begin to lose any strength she had. I'll admit I was in far too much pain to notice this until her body began to slump and she retracted her tail. I looked at her and she looked at me in contempt, asking, How could you have this power? You are no priest. 
I chuckled and told her that the army recognizes me at the level of a deacon. The hate in her eyes at that point could have stopped a herd of elephants. Moving my hand, not the one around her neck, to her forehead, I began to demand her name. Of course, she wouldn't give it. So, on to plan B. I began to pray to God and Jesus to cleanse your lost child and to forgive her sins. Free her from these shackles of this form and bring her true faith as she enters your house. I continued as she began to thrash again, but this time getting weaker and weaker. This time, my brother was able to get a hold on her down, and as I reached the end of my prayer, she screamed out her name. I demanded her true name, and she looked at me with true fear for the first time. I placed my hand on her head and made the sign of the cross. This seemed to cause her even more pain, as I demanded her true name. After a few moments, she'd finally said it. In truth, I expected it to be something impossible for me to pronounce, though it was surprisingly easy. I will not say it here, but I will say that before I let my grip loosen, I tested it out with a silent prayer. Her reaction was a jolt as though someone had just electrocuted her. Before releasing my grip, I used your name to command her to remain in her current form until I said otherwise. I picked her up and let her go, placing her on the edge of the bed that she was about to attack my nephew on. While my brother's wife and my sister patched me up, we inquired of the purpose that she had in this house. She answered calmly, as we finally got a really good look at her. Her body was like something you would see in a CGI model. Her proportions seemed to be slightly exaggerated, but not to a comic degree. Her tan and almost purple skin was flawless, minus the injuries that she had just incurred. Beautiful face, waistline, legs, and of course everything else. It would make even those most chaste men think of impurity. The horns, though similar to ram horns, were smooth to the touch and almost silky smooth like her hair. The wings were being so freakishly strong, were rather thin and small given her size. I was having trouble figuring out how she could even fly with them. And then there is that dang tail. Though not very long, it was almost pure muscle. Just looking at it made me feel more pain, and I wanted to rip it off of her pelvic bone. She did apologize for her actions, but that didn't make me feel any better. I'm going to need to pick up a donut later to do that. After getting the entire situation, I had to restrain my sister from going after the creature with a kitchen knife. It was her son that was nearly attacked after all. Although, thanks to my brother's level-headed thinking, we came up with a better idea. Since she is a demon, we made a deal. She would protect the family from harm whenever possible, along with keeping other demons away. In return, the houses that the family lived in would become sanctuary for her. Though, she would have to make herself known to the family. She would not have to reveal herself unless she was asked by one of the family. She would only take from the family that which is freely given, and must repay with something of equal value. If another demon became a threat to her, she would simply need to bring us a name and we could aid her in protection from harm. In return, she could have free reign on attacking those who take advantage of the family, 
all in all a good deal for both sides. Now, I wouldn't have made this deal without a little insurance. Since I know her name, I can call her back whenever I need to. Though, it is a very bad idea to push the boundaries of a deal like this. I'll still keep it in my back pocket, just in case. When everything was said and done, she stood up and walked to me. I asked her if she was ready to seal the contract, and she was. For those that don't know, if you're going to seal a contract with a succubus, you need to exchange the fluids and, like an old letter, seal it with a kiss. Since she had bitten me, which I would need stitches for her, we had covered the first part, and I gave her the quick kiss that she had wanted. I made sure not to linger in order to make sure I didn't fall under her sway. After this, we walked her to the back door and watched as she faded away as she walked through the threshold. That was almost ten years ago now, and she has protected us from several things. Things like my niece almost getting in a car wreck, or my brother almost missing out on his daughter's birthday due to his awful boss. Even helping my nephew find a good girl to date and eventually marry. She had even come to visit me when she needs to hide for a while, though I keep having to tell her to put on some clothes. Not that I mind, but I have very large windows in this house. I know when she goes after the bad guys in this town and I can't help but smile. Though, I did have to laugh maniacally when she found out that an ex-girlfriend was planning on hurting me when social media became a thing. Nothing like a visit from a succubus or her incubus friends while you're live streaming to get you banned. With all this, I just hope God doesn't mind that this family's guardian angel isn't an angel. I fell asleep at work. That was a huge mistake. Written by Jiha4421 I fell asleep at work a week ago. Usually this isn't a big deal. I work in a bio lab and the job has a lot of downtime. I was currently tasked with a thermo experiment dealing with a new strain of the IAV virus, the common flu, and was attempting to study how temperature changes in the environment relate to population growth of the virus. I say new strain, but really, it's the seasonal virus. I'm a virologist, but the complex I work at relates to bioresearch of all different kinds of organisms. As an independent research firm, we're often given tasks by a third party and are rewarded based on our findings. Often the tasks that I'm given follow a similar structure. I receive a viral culture, build the culture to a certain sample size, and then present environmental challenges to said culture and discover how it reacts, and what kind of proteins are present in the surviving population. It sounds boring, it isn't. I absolutely love my job. Well, I used to at least. I put my two weeks in today. I was relaxing in my office when one of my coworkers, Mary, knocked on my door. She was brand new to the job, but her warm smile was already infectious. I brought you some coffee, she said, walking in just past the brink of the door. I turned around from my computer, giving her a faint grin as I took the coffee from her hand. What are you working on? 
the temperature resistance of a new strain of IAV, I said. Sounds sick, she said winking. I admittedly gave a quick laugh, shaking my head. The culture I treated yesterday was displaying some very interesting properties. The ones that survived the heating process seemed to have a different genome from the others. I've been tracking this evolutionary process, of course. But it's almost as if the virus is undergoing a radical, divergent evolution. The ones that survived are developing a new protein coat, and their RNA is already showing significant adjustments compared to the parent batch. That sounds exciting, she said. You want to help? I saw the light fade from her eyes and she turned down at the floor. I actually just received a package I've been looking forward to this morning. Oh, is that so? It's from a biopreservation company working in the Amazon. They sent a sample of that they want me to look at. She paused and I could see the words forming in her mind before she said anything. But if you find anything cool or just want to stop by, I'm next door. You'll be the first person I see if I find anything. I assured her. We both traded a smile and she started toward the door. I turned back to the culture that I was currently studying, feeling her eyes on me one last time before she left. The door closed behind me, and I could feel my heart beat heavily. I sighed. This was to be a routine day. I headed to the lab, sanitized, and got into my hazmat suit. The chill room had four different cultures in it, the parent culture and the three subcultures who were experiencing different temperature controls. Two of the cultures were transported into a heating container, and I set the incubator to two hours. I made a mental note, split the parent culture into a new culture, and introduced a bacterial food supply for the viruses. With that done, I headed back to my office, turned the lights off, and I slipped away. Fifteen minutes, I told myself. They had ended up nearly being two hours. I woke up with a big lump in my throat, the kind that was a warning sign of what kind of week I was looking forward to. Crap, I said with a hoarse voice, standing up from my chair. I rubbed my throat, feeling the itchiness fester. I grabbed a cough drop from my pocket, swallowed it with a cold sip of water, and I sat back down. Crap, I repeated. Now, you should understand that quite contrary to public opinion, viral containment breaks happen somewhat often. Our lab doesn't deal with viruses that are highly dangerous. In fact, we are only really equipped to deal with low-risk viruses. And as such, our containment protocols don't need to be extensive. In the case of a small outbreak, the protocol is to sanitize, report, sanitize again, quarantine, and finally sanitize. I got into my hazmat suit and quickly returned to the lab, frantically pulling the cultures that I was working on out and inspecting their cases. The freezer sensors hadn't detected a leak, and the cultures had a population that lined up with their estimates. I did the same with the incubator, and again, no sign of a problem. I sighed a breath of relief. I extracted a small RNA sample from the culture. I could feel the cough drop working, but it wasn't long before the itchiness continued again. Quickly but ensuring no more possible containment breaches would occur, I sealed the culture, 
emailed myself the transcript of the RNA strand, and sanitized everything I touched for the day until there was nothing to sanitize. And then I sanitized everything again. At this point, there really wasn't much I could do. I told my supervisor that I was coming down with something. He wished me good luck and told me to quarantine myself until these symptoms resolved themselves. And, if possible, to procure a culture from phlegm or any other bodily ejections. I thought of the strand that I had just been studying as I drove home. The one with the bizarre genome. The one with the new protein coat. I had seen it before, but that was the funny thing about viruses. No matter how often you had seen a pattern emerge, they could still surprise you. The itchiness in my throat propagated. I made soup that night, watching one of my favorite shows and retreated to my bed. I stripped down and wrapped myself in a blanket as I began to feel the itchiness turn into a painful heat. I had developed a sore throat. It was supposed to be easy. The next morning, I woke with a crippling choke. The soreness had spread along my esophagus, and I could feel a sharp pain in my abdomen. I downed an Advil and spent the remainder of the day in bed, watching thin dark lines of shadow reflect off the backside of my overhead van. By the next day, I could feel a strict fever and my hands were soaked with sweat. My vision was getting blurry and my head pounded with the drum of a furious disease. I moved to the kitchen, my hands wobbling as I grabbed a bowl and a small bag of cereal. The flakes missed the bowl and I sat looking at the mess I had made on the table, my shivering hand clanking the spoon against the table. I was famished, but I did not want to eat. I had never experienced a flu like this. Was I patient zero of a potentially disastrous disease? Of course not. Viruses did not mutate like that. I had been working with the common flu. Sure, there were always variations in their genome, but the virus I had been studying was still mostly the same IAV virus that I had worked with for years. I knew this RNA strand, but still, the deviations that I saw. The pain in my abdomen was unbearable by the next day. I could barely open my eyes as sweat drained on my face. I was a wreck, and my body ached from every inch of nerve fiber. I stood, looking at the bright light with weak eyes, quickly retreating to my bed before a migraine could set in. And so, I laid in bed, continuing to fight with an invisible intruder. I tossed and turned and contorted and writhed, the pain in my stomach intensifying into a maddening crescendo. I told myself the next morning, I might not make it. The pain was so severe. My fever was flaring. My throat was intensely on fire and my abdomen was screaming. I was starving but knew no food would go down. I was thirsty but I couldn't drink. The illness only waned slightly in the evening, when the quiet hours of evening were interrupted by a surprising phone call. Hello, I said, feeling the tightness on my head as the fever intensified. Are you okay? A soft voice said from the other side. I, I'm fine. I swung my legs over the side of my bed, the room spinning as I slowly let the walls reorient themselves. 
I heard you came down with something, but I haven't heard from you. She paused. And I could feel nervousness turn to courage as she asked something I hadn't expected. Do you want me to come over? Maybe make you something? It was Mary. For the brief moment, my symptoms waned. I didn't feel anything but a slight warmth in my heart. And I was emboldened so badly to say yes. No, I coughed, laying my hand over my mouth. My hand was warm, and I pulled it back to reveal a piece of dark phlegm. My eyes lightened up in discomfort as I had realized I had coughed up blood. Uh, I don't want you catching whatever I have. She paused. I could sense the worry in her voice when she broke the silence. Did you get contaminated? I shook my head, the floor beginning to get dizzy. I grabbed the crusted tile by my side, slinging it on my shoulder as I moved to the bathroom door slowly. I worked with a flu virus. It's not serious. I want you to get better, she said. I slammed myself against the counter, looking shakily into the mirror. Yellow eyes looked back at me and my skin was pale. My lips looked dried red as if I had been brought up from the dead. I'll be okay, I quivered. She sighed and for a minute, we stood silently on opposite ends of the phone. I was holding back, violent coughs as I could hear her ease into a new question. Is it okay if I asked you a question? Go ahead, I said, my head throbbing. I could feel something in my stomach. The pain in my abdomen growing in intensity as I turned my face to the sink. Something wanted to come up. I turned the faucet on, dipping the washcloth in the frigid water. Were you in the office on Monday? I shakily turned the water off, gripping the edge of the sink as my legs began to weaken. No, why? I asked with a fragile voice. Well, one of the specimens I received from the Amazon went missing, and I was trying to see if maybe you knew where it went. Specimen? I looked into the mirror. I looked half dead already. The feeling in my stomach was beginning to lurch. I was about to give in. It was a never-before-discovered species. A spider. My eyes bulged as something in my throat popped. I didn't have time. I dropped the phone as my hands grabbed the sink and I lurched into the bowl. I opened my mouth and a wave of fluid immediately left my throat. Liquid flooded from my mouth and into the sink. And after it felt like an hour, I pulled myself up, wiping the edges of my mouth quickly with uncooperative hands. I could feel my tired heart accelerate violently as I took in what was in front of me. The fluid in front of me was alive. The sink bowl was red, the bottom lined with small chunks of flesh. From the mass, I could see movement. Hundreds of tiny hairy legs scurried around in my sink. I could feel my stomach nod as I watched. They were bright red, their tiny legs scraping what I had given up. Their small mouths feeding off what I had now stained the sink with. I had thrown up a colony of spiders. And then I felt the legs in my throat felt the movement in my stomach. I screamed, but this only invited another round, this time more fierce as a dark liquid came out, bringing along another wave of crawlers. There were unhatched eggs in this one, but many more that were struggling against the red barrage that painted my bathroom counter. I slipped back, 
Falling against the floor, wiping my mouth as more arachnids emerged from my mouth. My voice was dry and my scream turned into a petrified cry, as I could feel warm red drip down my chin into my bare chest. A hundred fleeing spiders crawled away into the dark recesses of my home, out the window and down the drains. I brought my legs to my chest, swatting at whatever had walked past me, my body lurching and violently shaking as a third wave tried to surface. I could feel my guts contort and twist as I kept my mouth shut, a flurry of tiny feet scurrying past my lips. Tears scoured down my face as I spat into the toilet, the drops from my eyes wishing the nightmare away. I awoke the next morning in my bathroom. The sink was covered in dry, dark red chunks. The toilet bowl was a color of dusk. The tile was littered with trail marks of red and the slain bodies of tiny spiders. The unhatched eggs that had emerged were still in good condition. I destroyed them with my boot. Beyond me, the room was devoid of life. I stood, my strength returning, and I turned in the shower as I quietly sobbed, my aching body destroyed as I weeped against the wall. I recovered over the course of that day. I ate, I sanitized, I drank, I sanitized again, and I spent the next five hours re-sanitizing everything that I touched. I didn't say anything to anyone. I had the flu. That was my story. And then it dawned on me. I had released hundreds of these into the wild. They had hidden retreated and there were countless now out on the prowl for the next victim. Victims who were asleep like I was. Victims who didn't know they existed. Victims who might wake up with a sore throat and call it a cold. Victims who would carry on with their lives. Until they found themselves giving birth to a hundred spiders in front of a mirror. I had done nothing to try and contain this. And so, I put my two weeks in. I'm not a virologist. The virologist would have tried to stop them from entering the world. I was too weak, too horrified. As a result, I have caused an outbreak of a new parasitic species. Mary was devastated when I told her I quit. I told her that I couldn't explain my decision. I didn't want to burden her with the knowledge of what she did to me. I wished her well on her research. She told me that she would keep in touch, but I wasn't sure that I would uphold on my end. I drove home thinking about what had happened. I knew I needed to tell others, so I made this post. I packed my things and I'll be moving to a colder climate. And to this, I can only give a strict warning. If you see a red spider crawling in your house, get rid of it immediately. If you show symptoms of a flu-like disease, get tested. Make sure it really is viral. And if you ever find yourself in the situation that I did, where you become the breeding ground of one of these abominations, plug your nose, aim for the toilet, and just get it over with as fast as you can. It's easier that way. I hope they don't infest the same person twice. I went camping when I was 13. I barely survived. Written by 02321. Back in the long forgotten year of 1988, I was 13, spending my first time going on an overnight camping trip. 
Back in those days, there was a limited options for entertainment. My parents were going to go crazy with me running around the house for the entire summer. They had put together some money to send me away for a trip to the lake for three days. I packed my bags right away, feeling excited that I was finally being trusted going somewhere overnight without my parents. The group was made of six girls all around the same age, with two adults as supervisors. They held three-day camping trips every weekend in the summer and normally had a bigger turnout. For whatever reason, we had a smaller group, which was fine by the two adults that were taking care of us. Herding six barely teenage girls around the woods was a hard enough job. The first day went smooth, despite our bursts of energy threatening to sabotage the trap. We each got into pairs as a tent buddy. We needed to set up our tents on our own, or mostly on our own. Katie was my tent buddy. We started off strong, setting up but needed help putting the last few poles into the packed dirt. I knew Katie from school, but wasn't in the same class as her. She was a shy girl, but we got along just fine. The other girls started to tease her because Katie was the youngest, yet the biggest, girl of us all. In that moment, I decided to defend her during the weekend, and we kept working away at the tent, ignoring the other girls until they had lost interest. Proud of our work setting up our tent, we treated each other to treats that we had stashed away in our bags. After lunch was finished and cleaned up, the groups went down to the lake to swim. Hours went by. All six of us started to get along, and by the time we needed to return to the camp for dinner, we were all so exhausted we let the adult supervision teach us important facts along the way. Things like what poison ivy looks like, how to know if some wild animals are in the area, stuff that we should know, but was always good to be reminded even if summer wasn't for learning. Drew wanted us to roast hot dogs for our dinner. He was finding it difficult to light a fire using a flint kit. He wanted to teach us a new skill. After a few minutes of a pack of hungry girls complaining, he gave up, digging out the lighter instead. Stacy was our other supervisor. She was a pretty girl, only about 20. When you're 13, that seems pretty old. Her nails were painted at cute colors that us girls loved. She didn't seem to be the outdoors type of girl. Drew might have had needed help keeping all the girls in check, and he had called in some backup. Drew was a youth pastor, and the church ran the camping trips. Even so, he didn't make us say grace before eating, or even any religious activities that he planned for us. He let us stuff ourselves, and when darkness came... We told some scary stories around the campfire. It was only 9pm when he made all of us go to bed, but from the active day, our bodies felt like it was much later. Each of us went to our tents with almost no complaints about bedtime. I had fallen asleep very easily. Only an hour had passed before Katie had woke me up by nervously shuffling in her sleeping bag. Are you alright? I asked in a low whisper. Sorry, did I wake you up? She replied back in the dark. Nah, 
I lied. I wondered if she needed to go to the washroom. The porta potty was set up pretty close by. Uh, do you need to go to the bathroom? I asked her. I couldn't see her face in the dark. I rustled around looking for my flashlight. I didn't need to go, but I didn't mind walking down with her if she was scared. Yeah, do, do you think that story Drew told us had any truth in it? She had asked sheepishly. The smiling man in the woods. Nah, he's making stuff up. If the woods were dangerous, our parents wouldn't let us go. I heard her head move against her sleeping bag, nodding at my words. Turning on the light, I helped her out of the tent for a quick bathroom run. Some giggling came from the tent besides us. Jane and Betty talked non-stop all day. And they might chat all night if someone didn't stop them. I was tempted to jump at their tent to scare them, but I left it alone. They would regret staying up all night tomorrow morning. And I didn't want to get in trouble for pulling a prank. And Katie was still scared. I took her hand and held the flashlight in the other. I even stood guard outside the porta potty while she took care of her business just in case. Katie had older siblings, but I didn't. She seemed lonely and homesick already. I was trying my best to act like an older sister to comfort her. In the brush, I thought I saw yellow eyes flicker looking at me. Shining the flashlights in the direction of the eyes, I saw nothing. Just forest animals wondering what we were doing. I was a little scared of coming across a bear or something along those lines. Ghost stories or crazed serial killers in the woods didn't scare me in that moment. The forest sounded like how a forest should at night. Spooky trees creaking and all. Just as Katie came out ready to head back, a scream cutting through the night made us freeze in fear. It came from the direction of the camp. The low fire gave us enough light to sort of make out the tents and a dark figure stalking around our campsite. Watching in horror, the figure went over to Drew's tent, ripped it open, and dragged Stacy out by the leg. I grabbed Katie, holding her close to me, terrified at what was going on. Stacy fought the figure with everything she had. She thrashed and tossed anything within arm's reach towards the figure's face. Drew came out of the tent, tackling the person or the thing off of her. Stacy got up and ran. At first, I thought she had left everyone behind, but instead, she had found the axe for firewood using it on her attacker. It was too much for me. I turned my head away, body shaking, unable to keep watching the horrible sight. Katie was crying as we held each other waiting for an adult to come and tell us everything was alright. We had only been gone for a few minutes. How did everything go so wrong so fast? We both screamed when we heard footsteps come closer a few minutes later. Opening my eyes, I saw that it was Stacy, black staining her shirt. She smelled like ten-day-old rotting fish and it made me gag. In her hand was the axe covered with more of that rancid smelling black liquid. Betty and Jane beside her, holding each other while crying and shaking like me and Katie. Come on, 
If we follow the trail, we'll head to Mr. Bobby's farmhouse. He has a phone, Stacy said, trying to sound strong, but her voice came out weak and shaking. Where's Mr. Drew? And Nina and... I started to say the other names of our missing campmates, but my throat closed up and only a sob came out. I knew what had happened to them. I just couldn't say it. They're gone. Come on. Using her free arm, Stacy scooped it up behind us to get us to start walking down the trail as fast as our small legs would carry us. Once we had started walking, Stacy kept both hands on the axe, and I was in front both hands on the flashlight, guiding her away as Katie kept her arms around my waist. Betty and Jane still sobbed behind us, no matter how hard they tried to choke it down. My hand shook. Every sound made me think something was just beyond the trees, waiting to jump out and take us. My eyes darted around, trying to see everything at once, making me dizzy. The farmhouse was a half an hour walk away at the best of times. Drew's car was closer, and I wondered why Stacy wasn't leading us there. I assumed Drew had his keys in him when the figure took him, or Stacy didn't want to stay at the camp long enough to find them. When you're so young and scared, you don't think about other escape plans. You only accept what the adult tells you. I got another whiff of the horrible, rotten fish smell when the wind shifted. Gagging and eyes watering, I refused to stop. Minutes passed and the smell decreased enough to make me stop choking on the bile rising in my throat. It was only then that I noticed Betty was the only one still sobbing. Stacy noticed it at the same time. We both turned to look only seeing the small, brown-haired girl and Jane just gone without a trace. Run! Stacy's shout got us moving. She grabbed Betty roughly, dragging her along by the arm. The girl was screaming in fear. Katie was the slowest of us. She was dragging behind me. But still, I kept one arm around her, trying my best to get her to go a little bit faster. One another dark shape came out of the trees directly in front of Stacy. She didn't stop. She let out a startled scream, swinging the axe at the figure's head. I saw a flash of glowing yellow eyes before hearing the awful crack of the axe connecting to its skull. It collapsed to the trail. Stacy wasted no time yanking the blade out that was stuck in the thing's skull. I shone my flashlight, trying to get a better look at the figure. Black blood-like oil oozed from the head wound. The face was pitch black and dark with no nose, its skin so dark and wet looking. More of that smell came drifting over, causing Katie to start gagging this time. Whatever this thing was, it wasn't human. That much I knew. We didn't even have time to guess at what it was before another came out of the trees. Stacy clipped it with her axe, making it scream and dart away. She was breathing hard. If more of these things came to us, I didn't think that we would make it. Stacy was only one person, and she had to defend three scared girls. Even so, she looked ready to do it. 
Another creature came at us. Sadly, while Stacy was dealing with the first one, two more came. In seconds, they grabbed Betty, dragging her screaming into the woods. Stacy screamed and cursed at them, pain across her face that she didn't keep the girl safe. More and more of those creatures started to appear and poked their heads from the trees in front of us. She gave us a look. No words, just a look. And I knew what it meant and what to do. She ran towards the monsters. Axe in hand and me and Katie ran back down the trail towards the camp. Knowing that we would never get past the wall of pitch dark monsters. Stacy gave us some time and we weren't going to waste it. Running hard, Katie kept up with me. Tears pouring down her face. I wanted to cry but I knew if I gave in to that... I wouldn't be able to keep going. Lungs burning, we ran until we saw the orange light of the fire. I planned to get the hot dog pokers or well, anything I could use as a weapon. For half a second, I felt almost safe. Maybe if we found the keys, we could find a car and hide inside if we couldn't drive it. Maybe, just maybe, Stacy would get away and we could all go together. But all my hopes were crushed when Katie stumbled, falling hard. I was running so fast that I accidentally left her behind for a few paces before us getting to a stop to go back for her. A dark monster took it as a chance to swoop in, trying to drag her away. I went by Stacy's example. I let out a war cry that would have sounded funny in any other situation. Jumping on the creature's back, I hit it with my flashlight as hard as I could as many times as I was able, aiming for its head. Our struggling only lasted a few seconds. I was tossed off its back, onto the hard ground. Looking at me with yellow eyes set in a dark face, it decided that we weren't worth it, and it sulked off. I had saved us for the moment. I needed to get Katie up and moving back into camp and to get a better weapon. My stomach turned when I looked at her. A long gash on her stomach was pouring blood onto the ground. I shook my head to clear it, refusing to give up. Grabbing her under the arms, I started to drag her back towards camp and towards the dim orange light of the fire. I knew some basic first aid, but already was sure this was far beyond what I could help with. Leaving her behind was not an option just yet. Horrible wound or not, I needed to at least try and help her. I was sweating and panting by the time that I got her by the fire. I kept repeating how sorry it was that I needed to drag her and hurting her while doing so. She was very brave and kept her sobs very low for my sake. Digging around in Drew's ruined tent, I started to look for anything of use. Just a normal camping gear. No weapons I could see, and no car keys. I grabbed the first aid kit, another flashlight, and some scissors. I was hoping to find a knife of some sort. No such luck. I avoided the other tents. I could smell the blood mixed in with the fishy rot, and I didn't want to know what horror waited for me on the inside. I tried cleaning Katie up a little, but was well over my head. I didn't want to hurt her by touching her too much. Seeing that amount of blood nearly made me sick. 
I didn't even know of the fact that I felt faint seeing blood until that point. I was so stressed that I wasn't even aware of someone walking up to our camp until they were just outside the light of the fire. My body jolted into action as I grabbed these scissors in one hand and the hot dog stick in the other. The black, blood-soaked axe came into view, and for a brief moment, I thought that Stacy had made it back. That was not the case. A man came into the light, dressed in baggy clothing that hung loose on his thin frame. Long, straight, white hair that was half-heartedly pulled back into a low ponytail, but most of it still stayed in his face, making it hard to see his features. Who... I choked. Two left. Good for you. Ignoring me, he sat down next to the fire pit and started placing wood onto trying to get it going again. I was so shocked at his calm manner that I couldn't react. A soft cry from Katie brought me back to my senses. I, I need help. My friend is hurt, and there are things in the woods that are eating everyone. Stacy had the axe. Is she alright? Did you see her? Please, tell me something. No. Please help Katie first. She's really hurt and I'm so scared. There's a lot of blood and I don't. Once the words had started, they just kept coming. They poured for me without any thought of what I was saying. I was having a meltdown. Stop talking. His voice was so loud that it kept echoing through the woods for a few seconds. I wasn't frozen in fear by the sound, and dropped all my makeshift weapons. I had never had an adult just snap at me like he just did. A tense second passed between us. Rubbing his temple, I saw regret flood over his face from getting angry with me. It only lasted a second before he regained his tired, worn-out look. I went over to Katie about ready to burst from stress when he also came over. He held a hand over her wound. I looked in amazement as most of her blood just faded with a wave of his hand, and her gash closed a little. Not much, but it looked better than before. Who? What? I asked in a very small voice, just in case he would yell again. With a long, suffering sigh, he went back to the fire, back, turned to me. I have a migraine. Your friend may last through the night if she's lucky. What about Stacy? Did you see her? You don't need to worry about her anymore. His cold tone nearly brought me to tears. I wanted nothing more than to just start crying and shouting, but Katie still needed me. This man might be able to help us. Breaking down wouldn't help us get out of there. Glancing up, I saw yellow eyes in the dark and I trembled. The creature saw us, head poking out from the trees a few feet away, drool dripping from an open mouth of sharp teeth. When it saw the man next to the fire, its eyes widened in fear, and it darted back into the woods. Those monsters are scared of you. I stated after I saw the strange sight. Looking over his shoulder at me, his eyes narrowed. He didn't want to talk and he didn't want to hear me asking questions. 
until I got some answers. One of those things was going to happen. I'm like their boss. They need to follow certain rules and they broke the first one. Only seven of them should be in this area. It was ten but I cut the number down as a punishment. I've killed the extras so right now, seven are in the woods. He explained. He sounded tired for how young he looked, under his bleached white hair. I wondered if he was sick or something. The other rule is they can only kill one human per night. So, seven of them can kill seven humans. So far, they've killed six. My throat caught again. Gripping Katie's hand, I hope it comforted her enough to calm her down after hearing such news. We were the last two left of our group. The fear seeped into my bones, making me feel cold even as the flames started to rise in the fire pit. They can still kill one more, right? I asked hoarsely. He didn't reply. He only gave me another look over his shoulder to confirm the fact. Even after it sunk in, I felt a little sense of relief. The monsters wouldn't attack us. I could just stay there or around the man and be safe. Looking down at Katie, my hope fluttered away. Unless he could heal her more, there is a very big chance that she wouldn't make it through the night. I needed to get to the farmhouse and to a phone for help. Can you carry her for me? We need to get out of here. She'll die if I don't call someone to help her. And I can't go alone through those woods with those monsters. My voice started out strong, but soon it went back into a begging and pleading tone. I'm staying here all night. My head is killing me. My eyes darted to the axe, tempted to threaten him with it until he listened. If he could kill those monsters in the woods, I had no chance of getting him to go along with my plan. If I went, I might die before I got help. If I stayed, Katie might die before sunrise. The world was so unfair at that point. I held her hand so tight that it must have hurt my new friend, but she didn't complain. Stay here with me. Katie said finally in a weak voice. I looked down at her, really wanting nothing more than to do just that. Staying meant risking her life. I wondered if she was considering that when she had asked me. She might have just wanted someone to be by her side while she was scared and in pain. Please, can't you heal her? I begged once again. I've done as much as I can. It's not my job to help out humans. I don't care which one of you lives. Only that those creatures don't break their last rule, and I'm forced to kill them. You should kill them all. They, they killed. I couldn't get the words out. I thought of Stacy and Drew and the girls that I spent the day with. They were gone and there was nothing I could do about it, aside from hate the ones who had done it. It's just their nature. Although that fact might be impossible for humans to understand. You have been on top of the food chain for so long. 
You think it's a tragedy when one of you dies. When in any other species. It's just how life is. My gut stirred with a white hot rage. I wanted to attack the man in front of us. Whoever he was. I knew giving into my emotions wouldn't help. I just let myself cry. And told Katie's hand hoping it felt like she had a sibling with her in that moment. I knew what my decision was. And I needed to get all the crying out before I followed through on it. You could kill her, you know. That way you would. I didn't let him finish. I tossed whatever was close to me at his head. He raised a hand to deflect the attack, making these scissors flying off into the darkness. I thought he would be angry at me, but he just looked at me a little stunned by my reaction. I'm not killing her. Katie's a sweet girl who is going to live a long life and do so many good things. She's not dying tonight and I'm making sure of that. Standing up, I went over to the axe wrapping a hand that could barely fit around the handle. It was heavy for me but I would need to manage. Rubbing the tears from my eyes, I looked around for the flashlight, ready to leave to the farmhouse. Grabbing it, ready to go. The man stopped me by standing in my way. What's your name? He asked, and it made me stop and blink. Savannah. I told him, not knowing why he had asked. I'm Liren. I'll give you a little bit of help. Earring. I had misheard his name. No, li never mind. Let me borrow the axe. I pulled it away from him defensively. I didn't want to trust him after he had treated us, but didn't have any other option. Letting him take the axe, he held it in one hand. In the other, he ran a fingernail across his thumb, hard enough to make it bleed. Pressing the thumb to the axe, the wood faded, turning into a solid silver. The black blood disappeared off the weapon until it was pure and glittering in the dark. When he gave it back to me, I found the now silver axe, light enough for my small body to handle. This is all I can do. You have to fight through this on your own. You may have a weapon now to increase your chances, but don't get cocky out there. And I know this is hard to ask, but please, don't kill those monsters if you don't need to. I don't like it when my creatures have senseless deaths. Killing for food is one thing, but... Gripping the new weapon in one hand, I found it suddenly very heavy. Liren, whoever he was, cared about these creatures. He didn't want them to die if he could help it. He must have had a rough time being the one to kill them when they had broke their rules. No wonder why he looked so tired and pained. I nodded at him and looked over at Katie. She still hadn't sat up. I wasn't even sure if she was aware of what was going on. If I died and she lived, she would never forgive me for leaving her. I just needed to make it for her sake. Giving them both one last look, I ran off back on the trail, new flashlight guiding my way. I didn't know where the farmhouse was, but I remembered hearing I just needed to follow the trail out and I would see it. I used up a lot of my strength running for a few minutes. Forcing to pace myself, 
I slowed down while looking out for yellow eyes in the dark, not feeling safe in the slightest. Shortly, I passed the spot where Stacy had made her last stand. Tears threatened to make me stop. I didn't see any traces of her, only the bodies he had left behind. Stepping around these scattered remains, I breathed through my mouth, trying to get over the smell. When I got a few feet away from the area, I heard a crunching noise behind me. Turning and shining my flashlight back, I gasped, seeing four creatures in the middle of the trail. Long fingers snatching up pieces of the fallen, and sharp teeth tearing apart the dark flesh. They looked at me, but they didn't stop eating. If the four stayed there, I only had three more to worry about somewhere in the woods. And quickening my pace, I went on. Every sound put me on edge. Sniffing the air to see if I could smell if any more of those monsters were coming close to me. Ten minutes passed without any issues. I thought that I saw some yellow eyes watching in the woods, but they didn't approach. The silver axe might be keeping them away. After all, they had the bodies of my campmates and their fallen to eat. Why go for someone with a weapon when they had some free meals all over the place? I thought I was in the clear when a figure came out of the trees stopping right in front of me. I knew which one this was. It was the one that had hurt Katie and the one that I had smashed my flashlight on. One eye was closed and the other looked at me with such hate. I knew that he wanted to eat my guts for the damage that I had done to it before. It bolted towards me before I could move. A clawed arm grabbed my shirt, lifting me up just as I swung the axe down into its shoulder. Letting out a scream, it tore the axe out, tossing it aside. And then, for some reason, it tossed me as well. I sat up, feeling bruised, to see where I had struck it. The wound was burning and flaking the dark skin. I scrambled in a panic to get to where my axe was. Without any rational thought, I darted off into the woods, with the thing screaming, following behind. I dropped my flashlight and I ran blind into the woods, without any idea of what I was doing. I should have stayed on the path, but it was too late for that now. The thing was chasing me, wanting to kill me. It was injured, but I still didn't have much of a chance against it. I ran, feeling as if my legs would give up on me at any moment. Tears stung my eyes, and branches cut my face. But I still ran for Katie's sake. The thing behind me stopped screaming, but I knew it was still after me. My heart leapt into my throat when I thought that I saw something in front of me through the trees. A beam of light moving confusing me on what it could be. Over my own breathing, I didn't hear any of the noises, but my brain clicked into the fact that I had just seen some car headlights. I, I was near a road. I ran, chest threatening to burst. I tripped over a branch and rolled into the ditch alongside of the road that I was so thankful for. Every muscle screamed at me as I got up and crawled out of the ditch towards the highway. It was late, 
but I knew this was a popular route for truckers. One would stop for me if someone would just please drive by. When I stood, it felt like I had twisted my ankle. I dragged my body, almost passing out from the effort. Axe still in hand, I looked up and down the road frantically. A blow to my back tossed me rolling into the middle of the lane. I gasped for air and stared at the monster that had just kicked me aside. My axe dropped too far for me to reach in time. It got on all fours, blood pouring from its wounded shoulder. I stared in horror knowing this was the end and for just to wait for it to come at me its yellow eyes glaring and let out a loud scream of hate at me as it dug its claws into the ground, ready to pounce. I couldn't move my ragged body, and I did the only thing I could think of. I screamed right back at it. Getting up on one elbow, I emptied out my lungs in a screech. That made the thing not only stop from attacking me, but take a step back. We both stared each other down for a few seconds. Those few seconds might have saved my life. A blaring truck horn came from down the road. The creature looked over, seeing a transport truck coming right at it. Giving me one last look. It skittered back off into the woods. The next few hours were a muddled, frantic blur I still don't fully remember to this day. The driver stopped to get me off the road and down to the farmhouse and to a phone. He went with the farmer into the woods to check on Katie while I stayed at the house with the farmer's wife, going between crying and sleeping. Morning came around when I woke up. Dragging my entire body to the porridge, I saw emergency crews scattered on the driveway and officers going onto the trail. Someone told me that Katie was already on the way to the hospital, and they let me sit on a chair on the porch until another ambulance came for me. I sat watching everyone run around trying to get a search started for the missing girls and Drew. I didn't know why no officers started to question me yet. I might have looked too out of it to be of any help. Someone did sit beside me to talk with me, though. I wasn't expecting so many of you to make it. Laren sat next to me, silver axe resting against the wooden rocking chair that he was in. I, I, I wanted to speak, but I was too tired to say anything. I'm taking this axe with me. No offense, it's too powerful to leave it with you. Unless you want my job. Uh, pardon? I asked, directing my head towards him, trying to see if he was joking. Kings only last for ten years, more if they're really strong. They need to switch bodies before it breaks down. I've been doing this job for five, 
and I would like to pass the crown on to someone else. It's too tiresome. I don't know why I agreed to doing this in the first place. It's also too much of a bother to set up tests for other candidates. So, I'm just asking anyone who survives a supernatural encounter if they want the gig. I stared at him, not believing the words coming out of his mouth. I didn't want to come across another monster or creature of the dark ever again, so having his job was way out of the question. This guy really needed to get some standards too. He was asking a 13-year-old girl to take over such an important position. How lazy could one person be? If I could move, I would punch you for asking. I heard a small sound that was almost a laugh from him. I should have expected that answer. At least you don't need to worry about monsters bothering you again. Any king candidates are off limits. If you weren't one, you're guaranteed to be killed by something supernatural someday because you encountered some. But I refused. I started in shutting up too late. That doesn't matter. You're still an honored human that the king recognized. If you don't want my job, you can become a knight. It would mean you would turn into some sort of creature, but you wouldn't be under such strict rules about protecting humans as I am. Your friend Katie accepted the offer to turn when she's 18. I shut my head up. Katie agreed to be turned into something horrible, like those things that attacked us. Like the things that killed everyone right in front of us. My knee-jerk reaction was anger, but the reason why she would agree to such a thing came to mind. She was hurt badly, nearly died and powerless to help me as I risked my life to save her. She might have wanted to get some sort of strength to ensure that she never felt like that again. You don't need to answer right away. Heck, you can ask to become a knight or the next king right before your death. So, just let it stay in the back of your mind. He stood up from the chair with the axe over his shoulder and he stretched. I'm leaving and I hope I never see you again. It wasn't the nicest of goodbyes, but I appreciated the thought behind it. Standing up, I was ready to talk to the cops even though I didn't have a good story for them. I stopped when Liren looked over towards the trail and gave a small, impressed whistle. Looks like I miscounted last night. What an embarrassing mistake. What I saw made me run past him and down the dirt driveway. Stacy was on the trail, coming out of the woods, being guided by officers wrapped in a blanket. She looked beat up but was still alive and walking. I didn't care about supernatural kings or knights. I only cared about getting to Stacy and tugging her for fighting so hard to save us. Thank you all for listening to today's lineup of stories. Be sure to check out today's authors over on Reddit and leave them some nice comments. They really deserve it. Also, if you would like to support the podcast, be sure to download and check out today's sponsor, Best Fiends. You can download the 5-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. I hope you guys have a fantastic day or night, wherever you may be in the world.
And as always, stay creepy.